Okay, welcome back, guys. So today we're looking at Leviticus, um, everyone's favorite book, right? Everyone's favorite book, the book everyone knows the most about. Uh, not a lot of Christians read the Old Testament, period. And then if they do read the Old Testament, we don't read Leviticus, right? Uh, people just don't, you know, when people do that thing, okay, I used to do this as believers, like, okay, Lord, show me what passage to read, and you flip the pages, like, Leviticus, you know, and then you flip again. You know, I think uh, a lot of people experience that. Um, it's not the most popular, in fact, it's one of the most neglected books in the Bible, right? If you talk about uh, boring parts of scripture, most people think Leviticus or Numbers, so it has a bit of a reputation, a sad reputation as being harsh or boring, or just, you know, not making sense. Which is not fair, because it's a rich book, right? Every book of the Bible is, really. But Leviticus especially helps us understand what Christ achieves on the cross, right? Deals a lot with sacrifices, rituals, offerings, um, feasts, and it's actually one of the most quoted books in the New Testament, right? Leviticus is like the sixth most quoted book in the New Testament, so that tells you that, you know, a lot of important things happen there that uh, the disciples go back to or preach from or refer to. So what we're going to do, we're not, because it's like a, a lot of, because of the way the book is, right, we're going to focus on the offerings first, and then we're going to focus on the feasts, right, and what do they mean and what do they represent? Because once you get that, I think you'll understand everything else the book has to talk about, Right. Um, and we also like see how the New Testament uses these passages, and then uh, we're gonna see how they point to Christ, right? Is everyone on board? So, quick recap. Um, so far, we've done Genesis and Exodus. In Genesis, we saw Israel's origin story, right? Starting at the Tower of Babel, God scattered the families of the, the earth into nations with their own languages, and then a few generations later, God chooses Abraham as the patriarch of his special nation, right? His chosen people. In Exodus, Abraham's descendants have multiplied. They've become a, a, a huge, mighty people, and they're cohabitating with the Egyptians. The Pharaoh enslaves the people for a few centuries until God rescues them, and we get the whole dramatic exit from Egypt, um, and God makes a special agreement with Israel, right? Making them his people and establishing himself as their God, as their only God, right? He makes covenants with them. And then the people build a tabernacle, and so God begins dwelling among his people, right? So that's where we left off with Moses, remember? We're looking at the tabernacle, why it's significant, etc., etc. And so that's why Leviticus is so important. It's a new normal, right? They've left Egypt, now they are starting afresh, right? God is publicly living with humans, and Leviticus shows us the holiness of God in fine detail. So God spells out his expectations for his priests and his people so that the congregation can appropriately worship and dwell with him, right? So if there's one main theme, one main message of um, Leviticus, it would be how to maintain a relationship between God and a sinful people, right? Because that's really what the feasts are. It's what the offerings and the rituals are. Right? It's how do we maintain this relationship with God. And so we're going to start with the offerings because they're going to help explain that to us. So there are five different types of offerings. Right? The first one is the burnt offering. So this is in chapter 1, verse 1 to 17. So these are the verses and, and passages I'll write um, on the, at the halftime. 
So we start with the burnt offering. So um, it's described as being a sweet aroma to the Lord. Right? We get the phrase, it was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So chapter 1 verse 9 says, And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So the burnt offering, you would take an animal and you would sacrifice it. Right? And for the people, it worked kind of like a tax bracket. You know, with taxes, the more you earn, the more you, the more you have to give to the government. Um, same thing with the people. You know, if your family was kind of poor, you know, maybe you'd have to give a chicken or something small. The more wealth you had, the, the bigger the sacrifice that you gave. Right? So the, more, the richer you were, uh, the larger the animal you'd bring at the burnt offering. And the whole animal would be consumed by the fire. Right? None of it was eaten uh, or used by the priest. So none of it would be used by the people. It's just completely offered up to God. Right? Everything about the animal is consumed by the fire. It's burnt up to the Lord. So it has the idea of complete consecration. Right? Giving oneself totally to the Lord. So I'm dedicating myself and my family to you, God. Right? That's what the people were saying with it. It wasn't a sin offering. Right? So they weren't doing this for sin. Um, it was just an offering for when you wanted to totally devote yourself to, to the Lord, right? When you dedicate yourself. So the way the New Testament picks up on this kind of offering is in Romans 12, right? It's not dealing, Romans 12 is not dealing with sin or anything like that. What does it say? So Romans 12 verse 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, right? So you can see Paul is telling uh, believers to present their bodies, right? All of their faculties, their resources as a living sacrifice to God. And he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, uh, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So the imagery uh, that Paul is using is of this type of offering, the burnt offering in Leviticus, right? You and I are under the lordship of Christ. He owns everything about us, right? He owns our affections, our time, uh, our abilities, our money, our resources, they are completely burned up to the Lord, right? They are all used for him. We consecrate our lives to Christ, right? We offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. So how does this point us to Christ? Are, we, are you and I able to fully consecrate ourselves to God? Are we able to say that we've fully given ourselves of everything that we have to the Lord? We can't really, right? We fall short. Christ is the only one who ever fully gave himself, right? There was not a single thing that Christ did out of his own desires, but he did everything in obedience to the Father. So Christ gave his whole life, right? His daily living to the Lord. And then on the cross, he was the sacrifice, right? So even there, you know, there's two types of obedience. And uh, you might have heard this. There's the passive obedience of Christ. And there's the active obedience of Christ, right? So his active obedience is referring to his life, you know, his daily living up until uh, when he died, when he was 33, right? So daily, what did he do? He gave himself to the Lord. He served the Lord. He did X, Y, Z, right? That's his active obedience, his actual living. And his passive obedience, um, it's called passive obedience because on the cross, things are being done to him, right? He's suffering. He's being mocked. He's being uh, scorned. And the Father is pouring out his wrath on him, right? Either way, you know, when you look at it in both ways, Christ gave fully of himself, right? He consecrated himself. Um, there wasn't a bit where he's like, no. Even in the garden, when 
um, he didn't want to go ahead with the plan, you know. What did he say? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. So that's how the burnt offering uh, points us to Christ. And that's, that was the idea also for the, for the people of Israel. Any questions, comments on that? Make sense? Second offering is the grain offering, right? So this is Leviticus 2, verses 1 to 16. So there's no blood involved. So it doesn't have the idea of sacrifice for sin still. And it's also described as being a sweet aroma. But the grain offering is more horizontal than vertical, right? You would bring the offering and remember the priest. So remember all the tribes, there's the 12 tribes of Israel. And all the tribes, when they entered the, the promised land, uh, they were given land, except the tribe of the Levites. Right there, that's where all the priests were to come from. So because they didn't have land, they couldn't farm. And of course, they're living in an agrarian culture, so you live off of the land, right? Which means they couldn't sustain themselves. So the priests survived through the offerings of the people. Um, they could take a portion of the offerings for themselves and for their families, and this is described as being pleasing to God, right? It's a pleasing sacrifice to God. Um, it's pleasing to Him because the people are sacrificing for one another, right? How the New Testament picks up on this is, can you guys guess in which context? Offerings, supporting the priests. Is it not bringing the offerings to the apostles' feet? Uh. <laughs> tithes. <laughs> tithes. Are you talking about tithes? Because answer is tithes. So it's tithes, right? More specifically, supporting ministers. So Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians 9, um, verses 7 to 14, right? So verse 7, he says, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Right? Just even with that, you know, like, where have you seen a country where the soldier pays to go and fight for it? You know? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? So remember the law here is referring to the books of Moses. Verse 9. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. So that's the passage that we are looking at in Leviticus right now. So you would use an ox to crush the grain to make flour. But you don't muzzle the ox, right? You don't cover its mouth. Uh, you let the ox grain and while it's graining, it's eating, right? It is doing the work, so let it get the benefit. And Paul continues, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure everything. Rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So you see how ministers in the Old Testament were supported through the offerings of the people, right? Paul is referring to the Levitical laws. So now in our time, ministers of the gospel should be supported through the financial offerings of God's people. Right? The principle is the same in Philippians 4 verse 18. Paul says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, 
a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Right? So in Leviticus, what do we see? It's a, it's a sweet aroma. That's the grain offering. And what does Paul describe it as here when, when we see uh, believers supporting ministers? He calls it a fragrant offering, right? A sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And so that's why, as believers, it's a godly thing to support our ministers and to offer tithes and offerings. It's a pleasing aroma, right? Um, you're not doing it primarily for them, doing it to the Lord, for the Lord and for his sake, right? So any questions, comments on that offering? Does it make sense? Okay. And then the third offering is the peace or fellowship offering. So this is in Leviticus 3, verse 1 to 17. So this was a sweet aroma as well. You'd bring an animal, you'd kill it. The priest would take some, and then God would take some, and you would get some back. It was a fellowship meal. You got to enjoy this meal with other covenant members, right? So remember that back in this time, meat is a luxury, right? It was something that was really enjoyed. And it would be given to you and your family and the poor as well. So it was probably an exciting occasion, like when you're a kid and uh, your family goes out once every six months to spur and you get to eat ribs, right? It was a special time, right? It's a special time of fellowship uh, for the Israelites. Through meals, normal meals, we built fellowship and community, right? We had heritage, you'd know that better than anyone because it's like heritage people, if there's no food, it's not really a gathering. So um, through Christ's death as well, we get peace and unity, right? We're able to fellowship with one another through communion as a profound meal. So it's a meal of unity because as Paul says, we are one body and we eat of the one body. Right, so 1 Corinthians 10, uh, verse 16 to 18 says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? So you see, again, he's referring to the Levitical laws. So fellowship and unity is a beautiful thing, right? It's a godly gift and blessing. Um, Psalm 133 is about the joy of unity and fellowship, right? It says, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's, a ple it's pleasing to God. It's a fragrant offering, right? So that was what the third offering was about. It was about fellowship. It was about community, God's people coming together, uh, united in God. Any questions on that? Okay. So those sacrifices so far are all sweet smelling to God, right? They're all described as being a sweet aroma. Um, and it's right because none of these so far are offerings for sin. When we get to the sin offering, it's not described as a sweet aroma, right? Which is the right thing because the fact that there is sin is terrible. Right? And now there has to be a price paid for sin. So you get the sin offering. That's the fourth offering. And this is in Leviticus 4, verse, uh, chapter 4 and 5. Right? It's not pleasing to God, but it's necessary. And at this point in history, an animal had to die. Right? The blood of an innocent creature had to be shed. So this sacrifice easily points to Christ in his death. Right? Christ was innocent. First Peter 1 verse 19 says, But with the precious 
blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So remember the main theme here is how to maintain a relationship between God and a sinful people. And we've seen in Exodus, these are God's people, but we know that they sin. And God is holy, right? God is righteous. How can he be in fellowship? How can he even uh, be in the same room with the sinful people? So at this point, I hope you can see that um, this is what Leviticus is all about. It's, it's instituting laws and sacrifices, you know, that will allow God to fellowship with his people, right? And even this law, even the, the, the sin offering was intended to do that. But we know from the book of Hebrews that it can't fully satisfy the penalty of sin. That is only done through Christ, right? And so God accepts these sacrifices of the people, uh, the innocent lambs, the actual physical lambs being killed, in light of the sacrifice that Christ will make, right? The book of Hebrews makes it clear that the animal's blood could never atone for sin, right? You could, you could sacrifice all the animals in the land and it wouldn't atone for a single sin. But, but if you made your sin, sorry, not sin, if you made your sacrifice uh, in faith, then it would be credited to you as faith, right? You would be covered, even today, you and I, our works are to be done in faith, right? We don't just do works for the sake of doing it. We do it in faith, right? As a means to honor God. The other part of the sin offering is that part of the animal had to be taken and burnt outside of the camp, right? Does that remind you guys of anything? Yeah, Christ, Christ, right? So where was Christ crucified? He wasn't crucified in Jerusalem. He was, crucified, he was crucified outside of it, right? He was crucified outside of the camp. Hebrews 13. So Hebrews 13 verse 11 says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So this just shows how amazing the life of Christ was and how he accomplished salvation for his people. But it also shows how sovereign and, you know, how in control God is. Because it's not like it's a coincidence. You know, God uh, clearly foreshadows these things. You know, it's a little picture of what is to come. The greater that is to come. So any questions? Yes. Um, I just want to ask, regarding the, like the sin offering of faith. You spoke of what faith is in offering. Um, when you look at the New Testament, there's a part where, I think it was a parable, not only really a parable, but the story of Christ told about the, the text collector and the Pharisee. He said that uh, he came and he said, Oh Lord, I pay my tithes, and I do this, I do this, uh, please forgive me. And then the sinner, the text collector, came and beat his chest and said, Lord, I'm a sinner. So I don't know if that alludes also to that, that uh, as you come to pray to the Lord with confidence, then you might not have anything to him. For him, because you're coming to confidence, just saying, I'm a sinner, you know, I'm, mm. I'm nothing, and pretty much I'm, I'm, I'm unhealthy, and I'm a sinful man, so I plead for your forgiveness, I plead for your, your atonement, you know. I don't know if that alludes also to that. Mm. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, exactly what you said. Like, I would, I would, does that make sense? Did you want to hear? Right. Yeah. Okay. Any other questions, comments? Okay. 
Um, and then the fifth uh, offering, right, we get is the guilt or trespass offering. So this is in chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 14, until chapter 6, verse 7. And this had to do with more specific sins and deals with uh, the element of restitution, right? So restitution is important when it comes to repentance, right? We may sin and ask the Lord to forgive us, and he forgives us, and we move on. But certain sins we have to pay back, right? If you steal from someone, you repent to God, but you also seek forgiveness from the person you stole from, right? And often what that would involve is you trying to pay back, right? Make up for it. Um, in the New Testament, there's the story of Zacchaeus, tax collector, right? What did he do? He stole from the people, right? He was robbing the people. He was defrauding them. And when he gets saved, he pays back the money. In fact, he pays back things like threefold, fourfold, actually, right? He pays more than he stole. And when the Lord comes to him, uh, he says, Lord, I'm paying back the people more than the value that I stole. And the Lord says, today salvation has come to this house, right? So Zacchaeus' restitution is an evidence of faith, right? It's not to say that, you know, paying back saves you. It's an evidence, right? It's a fruit, so some sins are more difficult when it comes to restitution, right? It's not always like black and white, like, oh, I did this. I can pay you back, I can pay you back. Sometimes you, you sin against people in ways that don't involve money, right? Or material gain. Say you, say you sin against someone that you're in an intimate relationship with, right? You must forgive each other, obviously, but now there's the issue of trust. You know, trust may be lost. Now you actually have to work to regain that trust, right? And this is not just the... Uh, you know, relationship, dating, or marriage, this can be in family or with friends. You know, you've sinned against someone, you've said something to them, you've done something to them. Now you have to work to actually, you know, uh, restore things, uh, to reconcile, to, to, to bring back trust. So restitution means that you must restore that trust, right? Forgiveness doesn't always mean that things will go back to the way things were beforehand, Right? Um, even though we're forgiven of sin, unfortunately, sometimes we have to deal with the consequences of our sin. So, in relationships, it has to do with winning, winning back one's trust, right? One's confidence again. And so, this was the significance of the, the trespass offering, right? It's making right with your neighbor. Um, and Jesus even, it was Jesus, right, who alludes to it. He's like, you know, if uh, you're not, at, you're going to offer the temple, Rather go make right with your neighbor and then come back. Was it Christ who said that? Yes. Yeah, it was. You know, go and then make right with your neighbor and then come back and, you know, give your offerings and all that stuff. You know, make sure that you are in a good place with your neighbor, with your loved ones, with the people all around you. <coughs> so that's what that offering was about, right? It's about restitution, making right with those you have wronged. Um, any questions or comments about that? Okay. Okay, so those are the sacrifices, right? Pretty straightforward, pretty simple. Um, and I think they're quite amazing because, you know, like, it's nothing new, really, you know, it's, but you don't see it because you don't really read this book. Um, you don't really read Leviticus. But Leviticus is not only just offerings and feasts and all that stuff. Um, it's mostly didactic, right? So remember we talked about genre, didactic is teaching, do this, don't do this, don't do this. But there is a section that is narrative, starting in chapter 8 uh, up until chapter 10, which talks about the establishment of the priesthood. Now, 
chapter 8 records the installation of the priesthood, and then chapter 9 describes the first services in the tabernacle. And then in chapter 10 is a story about the consecration of Aaron and his sons as the priests. And then he tells us about his sons. So he had two sons, uh, Nadab and Abihu. We are told that they bring strange fire, which sounds mystical. You know, it sounds like, you know, what's going on? You're trying to picture what is this? Is it like a blue fire? Is it purple? Does it got, what does it look like? But what it means is instead of, for example, bringing uh, fire on a piece of wood, you know, they bring a matchbox instead. Right? So it's actually the means that they use to kind of start the fire. Right? So the ESV, the translation says they, they, they brought an unauthorized fire before the Lord, which I think is a more helpful interpretation because you know, when you think strange fire, now you're thinking like something you know, uh, supernatural, whereas unauthorized says it was not allowed. Because remember, God had given instructions you know, down to the detail. He said, if you, when you bring the fire for the altar, make sure it's done like this. And the sons went against that, they disobeyed, right? The fire is not according to God's instructions. And that is the point of the story. So what does God do to them for bringing the strange fire? For starting the fire with the matchbox instead of starting it with the fire lighter? Kill them, right? And one thing that is made really clear in Leviticus is that God takes his worship seriously, right? Even to such a small detail as where did you get the fire from? And that is why we have so many cases in these books where it seems like the people involved did a small act. You know, they did something like very small, you know, and they immediately struck down. And you wonder why. Is God being too harsh? Is he a little too severe? It's because God takes his worship seriously, right? Takes his worship very, very seriously down to the smallest of details. So it's important that we learn from God, from scripture, how we are to worship him, right? And... Even when you think back to when uh, God had given the covenant to his people, people died on that day because they were sinning, right? Even in the book of Acts, right? We get the inauguration of the new covenant in the book of Acts. And what happens? 3,000 people died, I think it was. People died. People were struck down. Well, the point I'm making is that uh, there's people who are going against the worship of God and God strikes them down because God takes his worship very seriously. Are we good on that? Then we get the feast. So I'm going to go all the way to chapter 23. So there were, we're going to look at just seven feasts. Sorry, uh, back with the thing, the, the, the sin offering in, in, in chapter 4, it said, verse 27, it follows. If anyone of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any of the things that that by the Lord's commandment ought not to be done and realizes guilt, uh, just talking about that they can somehow be they can be forgiven. So would you say those those two sons of of uh, Aaron did those things intentionally? I think, yeah, I think they did because remember, uh, Aaron is, his family are the priests, right? So like if you're a priest, then you know what you should do. It's not like, like a, a normal guy who's like not a priest who wouldn't know what's, what's what. Um, the priests were given certain instructions. Their job was to maintain the temple and to 
be with the tabernacle and everything worship around that. So they would have known. They would have known for sure because, you know, God has given Aaron and his family these instructions. Do this with the tabernacle. Do this. Do this. And, I mean, when you read through Leviticus, you see all the instructions, you know, like there, there's a lot, but it's important. So uh, it's definitely intentional. But it, in my mind, it's probably like a shortcut. You know, they're like, oh, why do we have to, you know, do this, 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 just, you know, real quick fire, and then we go and do the sacrifices. And God takes his worship seriously. So he's like, struck them down. So yeah, I, I don't think it's, I mean, ten, I, I think it's intentional. I don't think it's unintentional. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to look at the feast now, right? <coughs> Starting with the Sabbath. So Leviticus 23, verses 1 to 3. Where does the Sabbath begin? It's a day that began in creation, right? God giving his people a day of rest. When the children of Israel left Egypt, when they were freed from uh, slavery, one of the first things God did was reinstitute the Sabbath, right? So how does this apply to us in the New Testament? So first of all, it's a creation ordinance, so it's binding on all of humanity, right? What people debate, I'm sure you maybe have heard it, is which day of the week is the Sabbath, right? Should it be a Saturday? Should it be a Sunday? Um, all Christians tend to agree that the Sabbath points to Christ, right? In Matthew 11, Jesus tells people, come to me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest, right? He's the true rest. He's our true Sabbath. And remember in Hebrews, the writer says that there remains a rest for the people of God. And even now we have a foretaste of it. You know, we rest one day in seven. But as to whether it should be Saturday or Sunday, we will get to that when we get to the book of Hebrews. Right? So you guys will have to come back. <laughs> Stay tuned. Stay tuned. I don't know if you've noticed, we quote a lot of things. We, we've put a lot of stock on the book of Hebrews. Yeah. Yes, it's going to be worth it. I hope. Okay. So one of the feasts is the Sabbath, right? Uh, the second feast is the Passover feast. So that's Leviticus 23, verse 4 to 8. So that's when, we know, we read about, we did the Passover when we looked at Exodus, when the angel of death passed over Egypt and the children of God were spared because they were covered by the blood of the Lamb, right? So we know how it clearly points to Christ, who is a great Passover Lamb. So that was also one of the holy days and the feasts instituted by instituted for the people of God, right? They had to have a Passover feast. And then we have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So this is chapter 23, verses 6 to 8. And what is leaven normally a picture of in, in Scripture? Oh? No. Corruption. Corruption, sin. It's a picture of sin, right? Um... Leaven is often a picture of sin in scripture. So unleavened bread is bread of, it's a picture of purity, right? Uh, and that obviously points us to Christ because he was pure. He was without sin. And if you want a scripture for that, you can look at 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, right? He says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, right? So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So Christ was without sin and then God made him to be sin so that um, he would take our, our punishment. And then the, other, the next feast is the Feast of First Fruits. This is chapter 23, verses 9 to 14. So imagine you work in sales, right? You sell 
cars or houses. Right? You sell property and it's the start of the year and the first house you get to sell. Okay, cool. You get paid a commission, right? You make your money. And imagine now the Lord says, okay, give me all that money from that sale, right? It's tough because like how many more houses are you going to sell during the year? You know, you might sell only one more house. You might sell a lot. You don't know, right? And that's the idea of first fruits, right? So remember, God said you would have to give the first fruits to his people. So whenever they were farming, uh, the first crop, the first batch of crop that would come up, they had to take that and sacrifice it to the Lord. Uh, the first profit from cattle, you know, so you remember your, your, when, when uh, what's, a baby, what's a baby cow? A calf. Yes, a calf is your profit. Right, that's the money, the return on investment that you make, and you'd have to give that to the Lord. You know, you don't know if you, the car, the the car will bear another child. You know what it is. So, it was, it was, it, it's something that called for faith from His people because it's like, okay, Lord, we're giving this to you. We trust you to provide because we don't know there might be um, a drought, there might be a swarm of locusts that eat up the crops, there might be a famine, and all our our cattle die. You never knew. So the, these feasts were to dedicate and so, so that's the idea of the first fruits, right? So the idea behind the feast was they are celebrating and they're dedicating the entire harvest as a blessing from God given to his people, right? And so when we get to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15, it speaks about the resurrection and Christ is called the first fruits, right? Because he's the first to rise from the dead. And Christians, you and I as believers, we also call first fruits because we are united to Christ. That's what James 1 verse 18 says. So 1 Corinthians 15 says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Right? So that's, that's how it points to Christ. Is that, is that clear? On the same page, yeah? So remember the first fruit is... It's the first offering, so it's the first of the harvest, the first of the, um, the first of the harvest, right? And so Christ is the first fruit among believers. He was the first offering, in a sense, right? And then believers, Christians are also described as uh, um, called first fruits because we are united to Christ. Yeah, does that make sense? Okay. And then the fifth feast, we have the Feast of Weeks, right? Also known as Pentecost. So Leviticus 23, this is from verses 15 to 22. Um, Pentecost is when you have gone past first fruits and you've gotten into a full harvest, right? And then they celebrate God's provision. It's a celebration of good things. It's a celebration of God's providence because God has provided Right? And Pentecost is 50 days after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So how this fits in with the book of Acts, where you guys know the, the word Pentecost from, is God's provision is shown in giving the Holy Spirit. Right? So what does the Holy Spirit do? Remember, the Holy Spirit gives us life and he regenerates us and we get... Uh, he blesses us and he, he keeps us, right? It's, it's, it's God's means of providence in our lives, right? We do, we do all things through the Spirit. And so that's how it points 
also to Christ. Does that make sense? Are we on the same page? Okay. And then we have the Feast of Trumpets. So this is the sixth one. Um, in Scripture, we have trumpets associated with the return of Christ. Right? We have that in Thessalonians, in Revelation, in Corinthians. Whenever there's a trumpet around, it's a victory of Christ's return. Right? It's a victory cry of Christ's return. And we are still waiting for this to be fulfilled. Right? We are waiting for that trumpet to sound. Right? So this was a celebration of that, celebrating uh, the return of Christ. Right? Does that make sense? And then we have the Feast of Booths. Right? So this is chapter 23, verses 33 to 36. So the Feast of Booths was most famous for waving of palm trees. So they take palm trees and they'd wave them during this, this feast. Right? It was a triumphant celebration because people would have their own land. Right? They finally actually had their own land. So remember, they come from Egypt, they come from slavery. This is the first time they have individual freedom. You know, they have a piece of land. And they lived in tents at the time on their own pieces of land. Right? They were called booths as well. So little booths, little tents, because a booth is a little tent, basically. So that's why it's a feast of booths. Right? And during this, they would wave palm branches. Because they're free. And... Uh, it's a feast of triumph and victory, celebrating salvation from Egypt, right? Freedom from the oppressor. And in Mark's gospel, remember Jesus enters Jerusalem during which festival? The Passover feast, right? Because he is the, the sacrificial lamb, right? So Jesus is entering uh, Jerusalem because he's a sacrificial lamb, but the people are waving palm branches as if they're celebrating the Feast of Booths. So they have the wrong feast in mind, right? Does that make sense, right? Because if you think about it, what did the people think Jesus was going to de deliver them from? Exactly, right? So they thought that Christ was going to deliver them from oppression from the Romans, right? So in their minds, they're seeing oppression from Egypt, right? So it's almost like they've got the wrong feast. They're like, oh, we're going to be, we're going to be free. We're going to have our own land again. Uh, here's Christ as the Messiah. Go ahead and defeat the Romans. But they should have been mourning, right? Yes? So is that like Palm Sunday? Yeah. Yeah, so we call it Palm Sunday because Yeah. Because the week before he was crucified. Sorry? Catholics say Catholics. Oh Catholics. I think some Christians too as well. Yeah. I see it a lot. I see people have Palm Sunday. Yes, Jews, yeah. Jews celebrated as well. So in, the people should have been mourning, right? Because he'd actually come as a sacrificial lamb, right? He came to die because of our sin. And it's what's called over-realized eschatology, right? Like if you were here at Bible Hour um, on Sunday, you know, you've heard of the word eschatology. You guys know now what it means. Um, and basically, Pastor Mike talked about it, right? It's when the church brings back from the future what only occurs in the future, Right? So um, it's what preachers even do today. You know, people who go around saying, um, no, like you should not be sick. You know, you should not suffer. You should 
not go through hardships because that's what it will be like in heaven. You know, you are now in Christ, right? So all those things are true, but they are not true now. They will only be true in the new heavens and the new earth, right? So they're bringing into the past what's only what belongs in the future, right? It's over-realized eschatology. And I think a lot of people do it, you know, even unsuspectingly, a lot of preachers, um, a lot of Christians who genuinely believe you should never be sick, you know, or poor or suffer uh, because Christ is king. And like I said, we are promised that we are promised that with Christ there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, but that is at his final coming, right? That is happening after the trumpets of Revelation, not now. So the Jews made that mistake, right? They thought Jesus was there to conquer once and for all, right? Uh, even the apostles, in a certain, to a certain degree, they thought Christ was there to like end all history right then and there, right? But actually, the story is bigger than that. Right. So those are the feasts. Are there any questions on that? No? You're all good. Okay. And then we have, um, in chapter 25, we have the year of Jubilee. Right? There was the year of Jubilee. Is anyone familiar with that? So, remember the rule for the Israelites was work for six years, and then the seventh year you had to let the land rest, right? And the seventh year they wouldn't work. So they would do this seven times, so seven cycles of seven. And then they would rest on the 50th year as well. So year 49 is rest, and year 50 is also rest, right? And year 50 is the year of Jubilee. And it seems like Israel never kept to this, right? Um, when you look at their history, it's like they didn't really actually keep to um, this law. And the year of Jubilee was significant because you had to return land to the rightful original owner, right? You had to return land, you had to cancel debts, and you had to just wipe the slate clean, right? Which is a great system because it ensured that there was never perpetual poverty, right? which is really gracious of the Lord. You know, if you were a slave, you'd be released, or if you wanted to, you could actually choose to stay with your masters. Um, if you'd made a bad decision, you know, which, would, which impacted your family, it wouldn't last to your great-great-great-grandkids. Um, if you were an indentured slave, you would have to be released by your masters unless you loved working for them and you decided to stay. Right, And in a sense, you can see why Israel never kept to this because it also ensured that greedy people never got super rich because that's how you know, wealth accumulates when you kind of indebt a lot of people at a time. So if only this was in place today, it'd be great. People, people would be buying cars in the 47th year, and mansions and all that stuff. Okay, it's not how it exactly worked, but you get the idea. Um, so this is all fulfilled in Christ. Right, Luke 4, Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in the synagogue and he's preaching from the book of Isaiah. And he says in verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's all Jubilee language. Right? He's setting slaves free. He's liberating the poor. So Christ is our great Jubilee. Right? He, sets us, he sets us free from bondage to sin, right? which is our biggest debt, basically. 
any questions on that? Comments? Okay. We're going to break there and then we're going to, because we still have two books. Yes, President. Yeah, uh, with regard to the part we didn't cover in terms of unclean animals, unclean food, if, if a person would uh, die without restoration or like you touch an animal or you eat a certain food and then you die the next day, what would be your eternity? So if you died without having done a feast, for example, like, oh, sorry, uh, having, having not done like a ceremony, <laughs> An offering. Yeah. Um, so remember, like, once you're in Christ, right? That's that's what saves you to Christ. It's not necessarily these feasts, right? It's only, and I think the point I was trying to make earlier is that only when your sacrifices, your sin offering is done in faith, you know, will you be saved. And even then, when you do it in faith, right, it's the mark of a believer because it's not like you know dependent on. This, this, this. It's those who, who held to the promises of God. So even when we looked at Hebrews and it talks about Abraham and all those people, it's because they believe the promises of God that they had that faith was credited to them, that they are now in heaven with Christ. So it's the same thing for the people. It's not that the sacrifice is like you do it and then okay, now it's you know, now I'm atoned for. It's it's more how's your standing with God? Do you have faith in his promises? Do you have are, are these things done in faith? That you're doing them in faith means you are you are Christ, right? It's credited to you the same way it was credited to Abraham. Because you can make the same case for like Abraham that, okay, he's going to die at two o'clock and he sacrifices at three, you know? And then he doesn't do it. But, you know, it doesn't work like that. Even for us as believers, you know, like I think a lot of believers have thought, Yo, if I die and I'm doing a sinful act, you know, then will I go to heaven or, but it doesn't work like that. You know, it's either you're in Christ or not. Either you have faith in Christ or not. Yeah. I think it's similar to like a scenario where you like, believe how it comes like suicide. Mm. You think maybe because they died committing a sin, um, I don't know, maybe they're damned for hell. But because of their relationship with God and them just putting trust in Jesus Christ, that will save them. Yeah. Yeah, but then, oh, when you read, with this uh, uncleanness and cleanness, 